Happy Halloween! In today's Taiwan Insider, by the end of our show, one of us is going to be dressed in a Halloween costume inspired by one of our stories today. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Let's take a look first at some of the stories that have been on our radar this week. The U.S. Senate has passed the Taipei Act by unanimous vote. The bill seeks to shore up Taiwan's international alliances and give Taiwan a place on the global stage. The House of Representatives is considering its own version of the bill as well. A record 200,000 people hit the streets of Taipei on Saturday to take part in Asia's biggest pride parade. Although challenges remain, the legalization of same-sex marriage this year has given Taiwan's LGBT community plenty to celebrate. Exports from countries across the region are down, but Taiwan is weathering the contraction better than most. That's thanks to investment from companies returning from China and an 18% increase in exports to the U.S. A wave of dust blown over from China has worsened air quality across much of Taiwan. Taipei 101 disappeared amid the gray dust on Wednesday, and on Thursday, air quality in southern Taiwan was poor, with Kaohsiung flashing a red, unhealthy warning. And one of the stories under the radar this week, the semifinals of a competition to find Taiwan's best bowl of fried rice. There were innovations like three cups chicken rice. Now, regional champs are set to face off in the nationwide finals in late November. Be forewarned, this won't exactly be a walk in the park. Now, I want to start off this week by showing you something that I stumbled across just a couple days ago. Have a look at this. This is a wall outside a cafe in the popular district near the Zhongshan MRT station in Taipei. It's what's called a Lenin wall. If you take a closer look, you can see that people have written all sorts of messages on post-it notes. They're signs of encouragement for Hong Kong. Now recently, Taiwan has had hostile incidents related to Lenin walls. But before we get to that, let's take a look at what these walls have meant to people in Hong Kong. Some Chinese students and tourists have lashed out against Lenin walls in Taiwan, and authorities are cracking down on this. Now, recently, Taiwan deported two Chinese tourists for vandalizing Lenin walls. Now, this tourist was caught red-handed 
tearing down messages at National Taiwan University. He was deported a couple of weeks ago for vandalism. And this Monday, another Chinese tourist was deported after he was caught tearing down messages on a Lenin wall at an underpass in Taizong. Now, some Chinese students have gotten into altercations, even violent ones, after seeing these walls on campuses. The Ministry of Education is warning that students who are caught defacing the walls or assaulting people could face prosecution or even deportation. We now turn to news from the U.S. In a grand show of support for Taiwan, the U.S. Senate passed the Taipei Act 2019. Now, this is a new version of a bill that was introduced last year. What is the Taipei Act 2019 and what does it mean for Taiwan? That's the topic of today's Taiwan Explained. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you about the Taipei Act 2019 and what it means for Taiwan. All right, Natalie, we have 60 seconds on the clock. You ready? Yep. Go. On Tuesday, the U.S. Senate passed the Taipei Act 2019 and the House's Foreign Affairs Committee passed it on Wednesday. Now, what is the aim of the Taipei Act? Well, the Taipei Act comes after eight nations cut off diplomatic ties with Taiwan since President Tsai Ing-wen took office in 2016. That's due to increased pressure from China that calls for greater U.S. support of Taiwan's international alliances. The Taipei Act calls on the U.S. to increase support for countries that maintain strong ties with Taiwan. The U.S. could also act against countries that undermine Taiwan. It also calls for U.S. arms sales so Taiwan can defend itself. And it said the U.S. should engage in trade talks with the goal of a free trade agreement. So what needs to happen before the Taipei Act becomes law? Well, the House needs to pass the Act. Then the Senate and House need to each approve a single version of the bill. Then within 10 days, President Donald Trump needs to sign it into law. Wow, Nellie. Perfect. (laughs) And that's it for this week's Taiwan Explained. For some people, October 31st is Halloween, but for others, it's the birthday of Chiang Kai-shek, a former president of the Republic of China, which is the official name of Taiwan's government. Now, we don't celebrate his birthday anymore in Taiwan. It's not a holiday, uh, and that's because he's a very controversial figure, but we're going to be talking a little bit more about that later. First, a question about a number related to Chiang Kai-shek. Are you ready? All right. Okay. So how many years was President Chiang Kai-shek the president of the Republic of oh, China? Oh, wow. When did he become president? For those of you who are playing at home, the Republic <laughs> of China was founded in 1912, oh, uh, and it was in Nanjing, China, and it then moved to Taiwan and now exists in Taiwan to this day. So about 108 years, how many of those was Chiang Kai-shek, the president. I'm going to say 41. 41? Oh, okay. I was going to say guess. something like that. 40 then. 40? Mm-hmm. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to have the answer for you in just a moment. But first, earlier this year, there was some discussion about whether or not to remove Chiang Kai-shek's statue from the memorial that was built in his honor. Let's have a look at that story. It's the changing of the guards at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall, and tourists are straining to get a shot. But could plans to transform the building change that? 
The cabinet says the hall will remain intact, but the future of Jiang's statue is not so certain. NTNU professor Fan Shiping says he supports the decision, but he hopes to see a more balanced perspective in the hall's exhibits to teach about Taiwan's democracy. Right now, there are 1,083 statues of Jiang in Taiwan, with the largest number located in the capital city, Taipei. That's followed by Taichung in central Taiwan and Kaohsiung in the south. And as for which government agencies have the most statues, the defense ministry comes in first, followed by the education ministry and the Veteran Affairs Council. Well, some say the statues should be removed because they are a symbol of Taiwan's authoritarian past, not everyone is so sure. NDHU professor Shu Zhengfeng says he believes the current administration is trying to push its own agenda. He says he hopes the officials can find a nonpartisan way to handle the issue without using it to sway voters in the upcoming presidential election. All right, before that report, I asked you how many years Chiang Kai-shek served as the president of the Republic of China. Now, Leslie, you said 41 years, and Natalie, you said 40 years. Mm -hmm. Let's have a look at the answer. Oh, 27, that's it? What? All right, so I should explain this. Uh, he served uh, five, almost five, six-year terms, starting in 1948 and oh. ending with his death in 1975. However, really? you are both very close from another respect. It's said that he was the leader of the Republic of China for 46 years. Uh, that's what I was thinking, like yeah. starting in the mm. 20s or something. That's correct. 1928, he served that's in a I number thought. of capacities. So you're both very close. I think I'll give it to you for this one. <laughs> I like that. All right, we're going to stay at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial for this next question. Now, you've both seen the front of the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial. It has these marble steps that go up the front, right? Yeah, beautiful. Mm -hmm. Beautiful marble steps. Now, the total number of marble steps up the front and then steps into the main hall is the same as the number of his age when he died. The question is, how many steps are up the front of the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial? Leslie, you look I like I think I know answer. this one. Um, yep. Oh, no. I'm, okay, so it's either 87 or 89. Pick one. 87. Nally? Is that old? I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I'll pick 86. 86. Okay, let's have a look at the answer. All right. Oh, Leslie, so close. Almost, almost. And the tip of your tongue. All right. You almost got it. That was very good. All right, now we're going to move on now to the question of the statues. Now, the Transitional Justice Commission has been slowly removing some of the statues from places around Taiwan, and they've been storing them in a park in Sihu, Taoyuan, in northern Taiwan. That's right next to his mausoleum. So the question is, how many statues are currently located in that park? Oh, that's a lot of metal. Um, 110. 110, okay. 232? 232. 232. <laughs> Somebody maybe has been peeking at the answers. All right, let's have a look at the answer. Oh, wow. wow. Oh, that I, many. That That's was pretty just, good. 
A wild I'm, guess? Oddly specific a wild number guess? that is wildly <laughs> throughout there. Now, I should say that from the video, we saw that there's about a, a thousand, nearly a thousand one hundred statues total. The reason why they've been taking the statues down and moving them to this park is that he is a very controversial figure in Taiwan. He's viewed as a dictator who presided over the white terror in Taiwan, during which many people were killed for their real or perceived opposition to the government. Now, I want to move now to uh, the streets in Taiwan that bear his name. Uh. There are many streets throughout Taiwan that have his name. And I should mention that those streets are usually either called Zhongzheng Lu or Jieshou Lu. And those are two of his sort of nicknames. So what is the total number of streets throughout Taiwan that are named after Chiang Kai-shek? You're including Jieshou Lu? Yes. Oh, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Are we including like alleys? Um, no. Okay. Just the main roads. I'm going another specific number, 562. What? 562. <laughs> I love the specifics. Oh, wow. Okay. I was just thinking like 50. 50? Yeah. All right, let's have a look at the answer. 335. Oh, no. somewhere right in between We're the, in the two of us. 335 then, right? roads. Now, you may be interested to know which city has the most Zhongzhen Lu. Taipei. It's, not, it's Taipei. not Taipei. I would have said Taipei too. Leslie, quick guess. Taichung? No. Taoyuan? Be believe it or not, it's Tainan. What? Which is counterintuitive because it's, um, it's, it's kind of a deep green area in Taiwan, which is the current ruling party, which is in opposition to the KMT and Chiang Kai-shek's party. Transitional justice didn't Trans really... No, it didn't reach Tainan. <laughs> not yet. Um, so they have 43 Zhongzhen Lu just in Tainan City alone. Oh, my goodness. All right, final question. No peeking in your pockets for the answer to this question. I want to ask you about the money that we use here in Taiwan, mm -hmm. the new Taiwan dollar. What is the denomination of the banknote which bears Chiang Kai-shek's likeness? <laughs> You're going to mix it up with... hundred? I don't know. I don't The hundred dollar bill? Okay. I, I don't really pay attention. Trick question. I'm going two hundred dollar bill. Two hundred dollar bill. All right. Let's have a look at the answer. Oh. Oh my gosh. Good job, Leslie. Ooh. You're doing well today. Leslie breathes a sigh of relief. You did go to school here in Taiwan. I look at a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Even the rare 200 NT oh, bill. Wow. Uh, do you know, if, are there any coins that have his likeness? Uh, this is just a bonus question $10? at the end of our show. $10 coin used to have it's, his likeness. It's the five, I think. Both the five and the one NT coin have a side Good profile of Chiang It's this side. I like That's money. <laughs> I like money. That's... Nice job, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. That was interesting. Up next, Hashtag Taiwan. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, Leslie Liao tells us what's trending on social media. What's going on this week, Leslie? Well, Andrew, have a video. <laughs> Those drawings of her. That was very cool. 
Oh, you guys are waiting for more explanation? I'm sorry. <laughs> was a fabricated introduction to a fictional cartoon featuring incumbent President Tsai Ing-wen not self-explanatory enough? I know. I'm, I'm totally... <laughs> I'm I on board. I'm, I'm ready Very to see nice. what's going to happen. All right. Well, that video was posted to President Tsai's YouTube channel, and all I got to say is, boy, howdy, is it something. <laughs> boy, howdy. <laughs> now, but you have to realize that there's an entire repository of President Tsai Ing-wen fan art online, and President Hi, if you're watching this and you haven't chosen a Halloween costume yet, I got you covered. All right, check this out. Look at these four <laughs> pictures. They were posted to President Simon's Instagram sometime early throughout the year. And uh, you have the Hulk, you have Yoda, but my favorite is the one all the way to the left. Big head, small body, you're going to get me every time. <laughs> anyway, these pictures were done by a local artist named Are, and he's noted for his, uh, you know, blue ink kind of drawing style. He's also the author of the Leslie Liao pick of the week. That is President Simon <laughs> drawn a la the cartoon style of The Simpsons. Now, as a guy who grew up watching The Simpsons and loving it, this had to be my highlight this week. Mm. Now, next thing is that Tsai Ing-wen is a champion of same-sex marriage. And when the law passed, a lot of people were seen carrying this picture of her, which shows President Tsai holding up a rainbow flag. That's cute. The That's words cute. on it, they say, support Tsai Ing-wen. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, Leslie, did there, are there any fan art pieces for her opponent, the KMT's Han Guoyu? Great question, Andrew. And there actually is. It's just not as voluminous as it is for Tsai. Han is featured in his own comics, his own cartoon. He even has a lantern oh, made after him, which debuted during the Kaohsiung Lantern Festival. Now, you'll see his trademarks are his dog, his blue shirt, and, of course, his not having any hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 I need some kind of uh, cartoon makeover. Well, you'd be cute as a cartoon, Andrew. Thanks, Nelly. You would as well. <laughs> I like the Hulk one. I think that one's pretty cool. I the one of Ty is Hulk. I think that's a great one also. Yeah. I also I like the Yoda one, but I like, like the I said, Yoda one too. big head, small body, <laughs> tiny glasses. It just gets me. All right, Very well, cute. thanks so much, Leslie. And that's our hashtag Taiwan for the week. Do follow us on social media and leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us for this Inside Look at Taiwan. We hope you'll check us out on social media. Yes, and do leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm a big old wall. And I'm Andrew <laughs> Ryan. See you next week.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Last weekend, Taiwan saw its largest gay pride parade. About 200,000 people came out on the streets to march for gay rights. This is the first gay pride parade since the legalization of same-sex marriage in May in Taiwan, but it is the 17th such parade for Taiwan, and people from over 100 countries participated. Now, Taiwan is Asia's pioneer in LGBT rights, and today we're going to feature an interview with one of the leaders of the LGBT rights movement, Jennifer Liu. She's the chief coordinator of the Coalition for Marriage Equality in Taiwan. She spoke with Andrew Ryan shortly after the law was passed in May. Now, first of all, congratulations. Thank of you. Course, yes. Many years of hard work have finally paid off with the passage of this legislation. Mm. How are you feeling now? Right now, actually, because a few days uh, after the days, right now I feel like, oh, we have still have lots of work to do <laughs> because it's still not full marriage rights. And also the international media have been uh, knocking yeah. down your door too. Yeah, right? tracing me, I think. <laughs> but it's great. It's happy to be the like target of the international media. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a special opportunity for Taiwan to be seen uh, on the international level. Mm. Yeah. Which is not something that always happens for Taiwan because Taiwan is, is quite a small island. Yeah. So the chance for Taiwan to kind of really make a name for itself, it doesn't come yeah. every day. Yeah, and then everybody around the world right now, they know Taiwan. And we are very proud of that because it's a very small island and a very small country in Asia. I, I think we uh, made the history and that will be changed the whole uh, narratives in the LGBT movement in Asia. Mm, and I'm going to ask you about that in just a moment. But yeah. I kind of want to start at the beginning with you standing on stage. Sure. You're outside of the legislature. Yes. The rain has finally stopped. Yeah, it, it was a huge <laughs> rain. Oh, my God. Um, and inside the legislature, yeah. lawmakers have just passed the bill. Yeah. Now, we have a little bit of footage of you standing on stage. Oh, and I want right. to play that for you now okay. so you can see uh, kind of what happened in the moment. <laughs> Let, let's have a look at that clip. And so I was crying. You were crying. I think a lot of people were crying that day. Yeah. It was a very emotional moment. Yes. Uh, what was going through your mind? I was like, oh my God, it's finally become the reality. Mm. I actually thought about what's, what's the scenario at that time, but um, after it became the reality, I feel like very emotional, of course. We mm -hmm. have been working on that for so many years. And also, I think the most uh, uh, touching thing is there were like over thousands. I, I think there were like uh, uh, 35,000 people. Wow. And standing on the ran yeah. for like a half of days and they, they didn't... Uh, want to leave the venue, the mm. the rally, and they want to stay with us and protect uh, the bill mm. inside mm. the parliament. That is very, very, uh, very powerful 
thing. Yeah. Now you were working on this for many years. I know yeah. you have been involved in LGBT organizations and rights groups for at least 15 years. Yes. yes. Um, was there any point where you thought that maybe same-sex marriage legislation in Taiwan would not happen ever? I think before that day, we feel like the the, the hope become uh, less and less mm -hmm. during, especially after the referendum last mm -hmm. year, and and during the referendum campaign last year, we of course we realized there are so much work need to be done. Uh, for example, we need to continue the conversation, the education in the society. So um, I think the, the the most important thing for the bill actually was the constitutional course interpretation. Mm -hmm. I think the interpretation actually protect the marriage rights for same-sex couple mm -hmm. in Taiwan. But after the referendum, we need to respect the result of the referendum. That's why we had uh, uh, the like separate law bill mm -hmm. sent to the parliament mm -hmm. in the very beginning of this year. So it seemed to me like maybe two years ago when the Constitutional Court uh, ruling came down yeah. and they said that lawmakers had to pass this bill. That within to me, two years. Within two years. Yes. That to me seemed like it was, it was going to happen. Like it was, it was a given, you know, there's no more discussion. Mm. This is going to pass. Did yeah. you feel like as optimistic as I think a lot of people felt then? Um, yeah, as an activist, I... I wasn't very positive about everything because yeah. the the politics situation changes all the time, mm -hmm. and also we knew there would be a referendum at that time. A lot of people don't really understand, but we know the opposition strategy. We know there will be some uh, very like huge attack, to, and for example, like a referendum. Yeah. But what's interesting is before the uh, high court's ruling, mm. there wasn't a. It didn't seem like there was a lot of opposition. It seemed like it was just a, a small number of people. Mm. We didn't really see it. It wasn't in the open. Mm. But then it seemed like it really came in a huge wave after yeah. the court ruling came down. Why is that? What, what happened to kind of really bring that out? Uh, according to our experience and also um, our opposition, it's like a, a lot of different countries around the world that belong to some conservative evangelical churches. Um, they really want to stop the whole process of the like same-sex marriage uh, legalization. Mm -hmm. So I think after the constitutional court's interpretation, they feel like, oh, it's, you know, it's the uh, last chance to stop this whole process. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I think they use a lot of resources and their like original uh, grassroots networking to launch the referendum mm -hmm. because they, they feel like they need to need, they need to do something within two years years and actually they did a lot of things try to stop the whole process like everybody see. Now with the referendum we saw about seven million people voting against same-sex marriage. Mm. Um, that seemed like a high number. I want to clarify that yeah. point for a little bit because a lot of international media told me why Taiwan um, Taiwan society against the same-sex marriage but you still pass a, yeah. a same-sex marriage bill and, and actually that is because the referendum the result of the referendum is really <laughs> confusing mm -hmm. actually the the result of the referendum uh, point out people wants to set up the separate law 
to legalize same-sex marriage instead of like uh, changing the civil code mm -hmm. what uh, heterosexual couple use right now at this moment. Mm -hmm. So there were actually five referenda that were connected to LGBT issues, yeah. three of which were connected to same-sex marriage, and they weren't, you know, they yeah. weren't uh, on a binary. They yeah. were very different, like they were overlapping in some ways. Yes, exactly. So you could also say that like 60-something percent of people supported uh, a setting up a special law to yeah. you know to allow same-sex relationships. Yeah, so that's the problem. That we uh, our referendum act is really confusing, and it because it was the very first time for a Taiwanese society to do this kind of referendum. So I think everybody is learning, and we learn a lot from that experience, which is we need to set up a, a simple and clear questions yeah. <laughs> in the referendum absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah so now the opposition says that they're not done fighting this yeah uh, they oh, say of that course. Yeah. they may have another mm. referendum mm. or may try to uh, have a referendum to get the bill canceled what do you think is going to happen and and how do you does your group plan to kind of fight the opposition um actually first of all I still want uh, like our supporters, our base, our community, continue the conversation and uh, sharing your own stories with the whole society because uh, we we understand, we believe a marriage equality past is not exactly means there are no discriminate situation mm. anymore. It's impossible. We still mm. need to work on that to to like create all kinds of opportunity for people to understand LGBT community and their stories. Another thing is uh, according to other countries experience we uh, we believe once people can see through your eyes mm -hmm. um, a lot of like love stories mm -hmm. in your like community in your life and that that, that might be your friends and family yeah uh, people's mind and concept will be changed very soon. Mm. Mm. And actually, you've been a very public face of this movement. You've shared yeah. your story multiple times. Yeah. Um, has that been difficult for you and your wife to mm. kind of be the public face of this movement? Uh, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, being in public, use your own story, sometimes put a lot of pressure on your, like, personal life. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah but um, because my wife support that, uh, she's also an activist. So we try our best to, like, get more people to understand our stories. Mm -hmm. But after a few times, we uh, become more like, uh, we want more different example and different mm. couples to be seen because we don't want people feel like oh we are the only <laughs> lesbian <laughs> couple in Taiwan which is not true right yeah. um, but um, right now I'm very happy we are going to have a lot of lot of different stories and and also some parents uh, with LGBT children they also mm. willing to share their own story that is according to our research uh, Taiwanese community Taiwanese society are um, uh, more happy to see to listen to par our parents' yeah. voice. Uh, I think people are very interested to hear what older people have to say about yeah. this, and I think they're very surprised to hear it when parents are supportive of their children, yeah. as your parents have been. Yeah, my parents are very supportive, but it's um, it's not very easy mm -hmm. from the very beginning. We have been working on our like parents-children relationship for a long time. I mm -hmm. came out, I think. 
when I was 19. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm 33. So it's been a, a while, a mm -hmm. long time. And they try very hard to learn my life and mm -hmm. my work. And, um, and especially after my father retired, um, I, can, I can sense the, the like society pressure become lower. Yes. Yeah, because when yeah. he was uh, in his very important career, need to take care of others, yeah. uh, uh, others' opinions. But right now, I feel like a relief, and he, sh he share a lot of my news mm. uh, on like his live groups, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> it, it was great. I, I feel so grateful and privileged that to have them support. That's fantastic. Yeah. And actually, they say that for the parents, it's also a coming out process of, of sorts as well, telling mm. their friends and, and other extended uh, family members. Mm. Now, I know you're going to get this question a lot. Yeah. I feel bad for asking, but, <laughs> yeah, I, it's fine. but I know you're okay with yeah, answering it. Yeah. Uh, now that the same-sex marriage legislation has passed in mm. Taiwan, I know you actually have already had a wedding banquet. Yeah. Back it's in a, 2015. Uh, yeah, right? it was a ceremony, okay. inviting our friends and family to join. Yeah. And that was after uh, the Taipei City started allowing um, same-sex couples to register their relationship. Yes, Is that correct? yes, indeed. Okay. What, what was that like back in 2015? Do you think it'll be different from what we're going to see in the, the coming week? Uh, you mean the, the, the atmosphere yeah. in the society? Yeah. yeah, I think at that time, although we had a like, wedding banquet, uh -huh. but everyone understands um, it's not an official yes. wedding. Right. So it's kind of a blessing, it's a ceremony, but we don't have any legal rights yet at that time. Mm. So right now, I, I, I think uh, there will be like more positive and people can um, people can just do whatever they want mm -hmm. uh, for for example to take care of their loved ones mm -hmm. that that is a very important thing for lgbt people in taiwan that is jennifer Liu, the chief coordinator of the coalition for marriage equality in taiwan she is one of the foremost leaders in the lgbt rights movement in taiwan we'll be hearing more of her story next week on taiwan today thanks for tuning in John Van Trieste and the destination prehistoric Taiwan. Food, it's Taiwan's obsession. From the sweet flavors of the sugary south to the strong salt and pickle taste of Hakka Mountain cooking, every inch of Taiwan seems to be covered in a robust food culture of some kind. Taiwanese food in all of its forms has deep roots and a new exhibit at the National Museum of Taiwan History traces the evolution of food here through time. The exhibit's English title, Nam Nam Taiwan, The Story of Dietary Culture, has a playful ring to it. 
But as museum researcher Zhang Yingzhi tells us today, the exhibit also has a serious message about waste, sustainability, and the future of Taiwan's food. Our story begins at an ancient trash heap. Ms. Zhang says these piles of ancient garbage can be found in all parts of Taiwan. These are the places where you'll find the earliest evidence of what Taiwan's prehistoric people ate. Remnants of shellfish, bones of animals like deer and boar, and carbonized seeds and plant fragments show that people lived, as you might expect, off of what they could find around them. For the most part, those who lived by the sea lived off of seafood, while those living inland hunted, leaving trash pits with more animal bones. This same principle of living off the land long determined what Taiwan's indigenous people ate. We have a much clearer picture of Aboriginal food culture, though, because these ways of eating are still around. I asked Ms. Zhang how the museum goes about introducing these food cultures, something many people in Taiwan today know little about. She says they've chosen three topics to focus on. Getting food, preparing food, and eating food. Each of these sections uses real objects to illustrate the sophisticated knowledge Aboriginal people have about their environment. The section on getting food features hunting knives, fishing kits, and farming tools, such as those used to dig up root vegetables. The section on preparing food shows mortars and pestles for pounding grain, along with steaming and boiling vessels made of copper and pottery. It's the section on eating food, though, that may be the most interesting. The plates and utensils on display show that for some indigenous groups, food culture is about far more than just eating. Ms. Zhang says that, for instance, the Dawu people of Orchid Island off Taiwan's southeast coast are a people with strong beliefs and taboos surrounding food. She says they believe that there are entire species of fish that should only be eaten by men or by women, by old or by young. It's taboo for a man to eat a type of fish reserved for women, or vice versa. Dawu men and women also use separate kinds of plates. There are rules about what food goes on what plate too. She says the round plates for meat on display here can only be used for meat, never fish. A key message here, as throughout the exhibit, is about the importance of stable food supplies. The Dawu people, for instance, are famed for their skill at catching the flying fish that pass by their island. But any flying fish spotted out of season is left alone and never caught. When people from China began arriving in Taiwan several centuries ago, they brought their own ideas about food with them. Ideas very different from those of Taiwan's most ancient inhabitants. Ms. Zhang says that traditional Chinese attitudes towards food treat it like medicine. Food is divided into categories, hot, warm, cool, and cold. Each of these types of food has an impact on a person's health depending on when they're eaten. I ask Ms. Zhang how Taiwan and its environment have changed Chinese styles of cooking. She says that what's available in one place is different from what's available in another. But there's more. Taiwan is multicultural, and different groups of people have mixed and adapted to one another here. 
The example Ms. Zhang gives about how this has changed cooking is cooking from China's inland provinces and how it has been tailored to Taiwanese tastes. There's plenty of food in Taiwan today from places like Sichuan and Hunan, but this isn't necessarily something a person actually from Sichuan or Hunan would recognize as their own. The heat of the food might be taken down a notch, and so might the saltiness and other intense flavors. It's a matter of what Taiwanese people are prepared to eat. One of the highlights of this exhibit has to be the old-fashioned Taiwanese kitchen, a complete model with everything you might expect to see decades ago. Ms. Zhang says this type of kitchen dates from after the 1930s and continued to be common up until the introduction of gas ranges. At the center is an old-fashioned stove, the kind that once burned wood. On the wall is a printed image of the kitchen god. To the right, a round table is piled with wonderful-looking banquet dishes. Ms. Zhang says this kitchen reflects a time when metal and plastic were not yet so common. An array of bamboo baskets and steamers sit on the tables. Bamboo, wood, and pottery, long-lasting and easy to get, were the main materials. They're even used to make the upside-down baskets that cover finished food, keeping out bugs and stopping the cat or dog from sneaking a bit for themselves. Today's Taiwanese kitchens are tiny by comparison. Ms. Zhang says that shrinking household sizes and the rise of modern conveniences like electric pots have eliminated the need for so much space. There are other changes too. She says today's jars and containers are lightweight and easy to move. Unlike the heavy-duty containers found in old kitchens like this one, there's another life-size model here too, one that takes the idea of food culture a bit beyond just food. This is a Taiwanese institution, and I'm shocked to learn how recent an institution it is. I'm talking about the betel nut stand. These can take the form of shop fronts or glass booths on the side of the road. They're marked out by distinctive fan-shaped light arrangements that blink in a rainbow of colors. In Taiwan, these seem to be just about everywhere you go. Ms. Zhang says the habit of chewing this stimulant nut in Taiwan goes back four or five thousand years. Old Chinese paintings show Aborigines climbing the palm-like betel nut trees to harvest some. Ms. Zhang says that these betel nuts would not have seemed strange to Chinese immigrants. They're chewed elsewhere too, including in mainland China. But it's these betel nut stands that are new. She says that before the 1990s, betel nuts were sold by elderly grandmas. They could also be found at Chinese pharmacies, where their medicinal properties were appreciated. She says that our image of betel nuts today—tooth loss, oral cancer, and a horrible red slime on the mouth. Is far removed from the image people had of betel nuts in the past. Back then, it was used for trade or offered as a sign of hospitality. Still, this is one thing that might be better left in the history books. At the end of the exhibit, we come to a big model of a garbage truck. We still take our trash and dump it into piles, just like our prehistoric ancestors did. Only now, there's a lot more waste. There are throwaway utensils and materials that won't break down. 
Then there's the energy used to ship food in from distant places and to keep it fresh along the way. There's also waste in another form. Food just about to reach its expiration date gets thrown away. The future of Taiwan's food also faces another challenge: sustainability in an age of overfishing. Will the same species found in prehistoric trash heaps be around in the future? There are no guarantees. But Ms. Zhang says that in addition to teaching about the past, the exhibit is supposed to help change thinking about the future. At the exhibit, you'll find a consumer's guide developed by Taiwan's top research institute, aimed at helping shoppers make good seafood choices. There's also discussion about food banks for food that's still good and still needed. Ms. Zhang says these are the sorts of things the exhibit hopes to highlight: the choices that can make a difference. Eating is something we do every day, she says, and Taiwanese habits can change again in the future if we start thinking now about how the way we eat impacts the world. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Turn to news from the U.S. In a grand show of support for Taiwan, the U.S. Senate passed the Taipei Act 2019. Now, this is a new version of a bill that was introduced last year. What is the Taipei Act 2019, and what does it mean for Taiwan? That's the topic of today's Taiwan Explained. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you about the Taipei Act 2019 and what it means for Taiwan. All right, Natalie. We have 60 seconds on the clock. You ready? Yep. Go. On Tuesday, the U.S. Senate passed the Taipei Act 2019, and the House's Foreign Affairs Committee passed it on Wednesday. Now, what is the aim of the Taipei Act? Well, the Taipei Act comes after eight nations cut off diplomatic ties with Taiwan since President Tsai Ing-wen took office in 2016. That's due to increased pressure from China that calls for greater U.S. support of Taiwan's international alliances. The Taipei Act calls on the U.S. to increase support for countries that maintain strong ties with Taiwan. The U.S. could also act against countries that undermine Taiwan. It also calls for U.S. arms sales so Taiwan can defend itself. And it said the U.S. should engage in trade talks with the goal of a free trade agreement. So, what needs to happen before the Taipei Act becomes law? Well, the House needs to pass the Act. Then the Senate and House need to each approve a single version of the bill. Then, within 10 days, President Donald Trump needs to sign it into law. Wow, Nelly, perfect. <laughs> and that's it for this week's Taiwan Explained. Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu as they sample their way through Taiwan's culinary delights. Andrew, I thought we said no more intestines. <clears throat> That's on Feast Meets West. 
every Saturday, only on Radio Taiwan International. Radio for refined palates. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.